The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, it's our um, privilege to have another Reformation celebration here, and we started these about two years ago. This is our third one, and our desire here at Maranatha is to um, really understand church history because we believe that to understand church history is to learn from it and to grow from it. And so we want to be a kind of church that appreciates what has taken place in the past. And so that's kind of the impetus behind this Reformation celebration. We want to understand really what took place back in the 1500s with men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox, and we uh, ride on the shoulders of those men. Those are men that are heroes of the faith, and so we want to learn from them even 500 years past uh, their their teaching and their ministry. So we have uh, the privilege tonight of having uh, Dr. David Murray with us. He is a professor at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's a professor of Old Testament and practical theology there, and it's a real privilege to have him in our in our city. We had uh, Dr. Beakey here last week, or last year, who's the uh, president of that school, and it's a privilege to have Dr. Murray here tonight. He's from Scotland. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland. He has a great accent, so I know you'll appreciate that. You, you probably think we all have accents, don't you? But uh, you'll appreciate that. He's a pastor for 12 years in Scotland and has been here now at Puritan Reform for about four years. His wife, Shauna, have four children, and it's a real uh, privilege to, to have him here. He's going to be speaking on the world-changing power of the conscience, and he's going to talk about the role of the conscience in the Reformation, and then I believe you're going to draw some principles for us today and what that means for us. So I know you'll be blessed and encouraged as you hear him. I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll have him come. Father, it is so good to be here tonight. I thank you for these dear people and their desire to come and to be fed, not only physically, but spiritually. And Lord, we look forward to what you're going to teach us. We, we thank you for the men and women who have gone before us. We thank you for the, the legacy of godly saints of past. And we want to emulate their faith. We want to learn from them. We want to stand firm in the faith. We want to be men and women of the word. We want to live for your glory and your honor alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that in this day, in this age, we can easily lose sight of those things. And so tonight and opportunities like tonight are, are opportunities for us to remember what's most important in the church and in the world through the gospel of Christ. So as Dr. Murray comes, Lord, please bless him, use him mightily to instruct us and encourage us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's welcome Dr. Murray. Well, what a great turnout for a midweek. Well done coming out. (coughs) Dear me. Just swallowed something. Not a good start, is it? Excuse me. Um, I'm sorry I couldn't join you for your meal. I was planning to, but my wife went back to Scotland. It was planned. Um, <laughs> with uh, three of my children, left me with one to look after. And with looking after him and looking after myself, things have been a bit hectic this past few days. You know, when you think of Scotland, you probably think of the land of the Reformation. And so much wonderful history. Thank you. <laughs> Probably going to be needed. So much wonderful history associated with Scotland. But I'm afraid it's, um, 
it's really in a terrible spiritual condition in these days. And, and the vast majority of churches are, are small, maybe 30 to 40 on average. A lot of elderly congregations, very few young people. It's a very hostile, secular climate in the media, in law, in politics, in education. And really without another reformation, things look very, very bleak for Scotland and for much of the rest of Europe as well. So I know some Americans view Scotland through rather rose-tinted or maybe tartan-tinted spectacles, but um, things really are pretty grim. And if you can find a place in your prayers from time to time for Scotland, it would be much appreciated. I'll try and talk a bit slowly to begin with just to get you acclimatized to my accent, and then hopefully you'll, you'll catch up with me. Thank you, Todd, for this invitation to come and address you on this really quite exciting topic, to me at least, I hope to you as well, by the end of the evening. The topic is the world-changing power of a good conscience. Conscience is not a word that's really very well understood in our own day. The Academy of Television, Arts and Science award annually um, to television shows, uh, theatre productions, um, a title is called something like this, Programs with a Conscience. Usually award eight to ten programs, shows a year with this title. And to give you a sample of the kind of shows that have won in the past, um, crime scene investigators uh, for a particular show that focused on prejudice. There are a couple of documentaries that dealt with things like assisted living um, and assisted suicide. And probably most infamously, uh, the program Glee which was awarded this show with a conscience title for a particular episode in which the whole cast played their parts in wheelchairs out of sympathy for a cast member who acted in a wheelchair all the time. And then there was a big outcry over that because the person in the show that acts as a disabled person, is actually not disabled. And so the Disabled Actors Union was up in arms uh, because they didn't have one of their own taking this pivotal role. So when you, when you hear conscience used like this in our own culture, it, the definition of conscience is really changing in our culture. And, and it seems to mean something like thought-provoking or provocative challenging norms. But really, this use of conscience has no reference at all to God. It's no reference at all to unchanging laws. It's got no reference at all to any outside objective standard. What's a show with a conscience one year may not be a show with a conscience the year after. Society moves on. So, Maybe when you hear the world-changing power of a good conscience, you might have some of these secular ideas in your mind. And one of the things I want to try and do tonight is 
is try and take that out and put back in the biblical view of a good conscience. Maybe to do that, to begin with, I'd like to read a few verses from Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, there Paul is being accused, um, as he is frequently in the book of Acts. He's um, here in front of Felix, the Roman governor. He's being accused by Tertullus, the attorney. And in verse 10 we read, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offence toward God and men. Just that last verse in particular, Paul says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offence toward God and men. So what is conscience? Well, conscience is that part of us that tells us that we ought to do the will of God. It's that part of us that tells us that we ought to do the will of God. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, says conscience is either the greatest friend or the greatest enemy in the world. I'd like to show you how that is true as we go through this talk this evening. I want to look at Paul, of course, but I want to also look at Martin Luther. And then I want to draw lessons from Paul and Luther for our own day. Conscience has been called God's deputy, God's spokesman, God's sergeant major, or God's whisper. Bunyan called it God's recorder. It's God's voice within telling us, Thou shalt, and thou shalt not. And some people, even in the secular world, have have some sense of this faculty, this voice within. Remember Christopher Reeve, Superman, as he was once called. He said, I think we all have a little voice inside us that will guide us. It may be God. I don't know. But I think that if we shut out all the noise and clutter from our lives and listen to that voice, it will tell us the right thing to do. Very close, isn't it? Don't know if it's God. But we've all got this voice 
And there's something within me that tells me that not only do I have this voice, and not only is it telling me what I ought and ought not to do, but I think I should probably obey it. And if I did, it would go quite well with me. As Sib said, it's either our greatest friend or our greatest enemy. I want to show you four things that Paul did, because there are four things that Luther did, and there are four things that we should do with reference to conscience. The first thing that Paul did, Luther did, and we should do is educate it. We have to educate our consciences. There was a time before sin when conscience was perfect. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and before they ate of the forbidden fruit, they had perfect conscience. You know, the literal meaning of conscience is with knowledge. And it's really referring to human beings sharing knowledge with God. It's knowledge with God. And that's what Adam and Eve had, isn't it? They had knowledge with God. God shared his knowledge with them, his knowledge of what was right and wrong. And their conscience was perfectly educated. It was clear. It was unambiguous. There were no excuses for them disobeying it. And yet they did. And when they did, what happened to conscience? Well, it was emptied largely of knowledge. And in its place came shame and fear and guilt. As a result, from then on, human conscience has lacked knowledge with God. The knowledge that God once shared with us is no longer there. Or at least it's there and it's very confused and overwhelmed by the the guilt and the fear and the shame that, that obscures its voice and that silences it within us. And that's where we are today, isn't it? We do hear a voice, but whose voice? We hear, thou shalt and thou shalt not. But is that God? Is that Satan? Or is that just me? And then sometimes there's so much guilt, shame and fear that I hardly hear any voice. There's just so much clutter. And therefore the first thing that has to be done to have a good conscience that will transform us and our world is to educate it, to fill it with knowledge again. To put back into it the knowledge that has seeped away and escaped from it. That's why we need to be educated in the word and will of God. Interestingly, Luther, when he was accused at the time of the Reformation, said, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. And isn't it interesting also in this passage here, just before Paul speaks of having a good conscience, in verse 14 he says, I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And then he says, I exercise myself to have a good conscience. 
So both with Paul and Luther we see that the essential first step towards having a good conscience is having a good education. The first step is to have the word and will of God inform our minds. That's what our conscience must feed on. That's what gives it fuel. That's what gives it clarity. And that's why really the first step in Luther's own life at the Reformation was the rediscovery of the word of God. And as he read and as he studied, it began to to clarify and sharpen and turn up the volume of his conscience. One of the French reformers said this, Conscience without God is like a court without a judge. John Bunyan says of Mr. Recorder, which is his personification of conscience. Mr. Recorder was a man well read in the laws of the king and also a man of courage and faithfulness to speak truth at every occasion. He could make the whole town of man's soul shake with his voice. Do you see the message that's coming across here from Paul, from Luther, from Bunyan, from Alphonse de Lamartine? We need an educated conscience. That's what changed Paul. And through Paul, that's what changed the world. That's what changed Luther. And through Luther, the world was changed. And if we are to be changed, and if through us our world is to be changed, this too is where we must begin the word and the will of God, an educated conscience. And who among us can deny this reality? We all feel it, don't we? We all sense it. We all feel our confusion at times. We're confronted with moral and ethical dilemmas, difficult decisions in the family or at work, and we don't know what to do. And We're hearing conflicting voices. But if our minds are filled with the word and will of God, that conscience will come through above all the other voices competing for our attention and show us the clear way to walk. Let me just read you another couple of extracts from, from Luther's own biography, just to, again, show you the, how really all began in Luther's life with the conscience in his personal conversion, of course, but also later in the stand he took against the Roman Catholic truth or Roman Catholic falsehood. On a sultry day in July 1505, I trudged over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Sotterheim. Wearing the dress of a university law student, I approached the village as the sky became overcast. Suddenly, a shower erupted, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning displaced the gloom and knocked me to the ground. Struggling to rise, I cried in terror, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Then he says, I knew in my conscience that God designed me to live face to face in a peaceful relationship with him. However, I also knew, due to my sin and God's holiness, that I lived in separation from him. My awareness of my distance from God terrified me. Here's this 
dilemma of conscience beginning. And it's a very badly informed conscience. It's a badly educated conscience. And yet, still it's speaking and still it's, like as he says later, the thunderstorm I experienced in Stotterheim was nothing compared to the thunderstorm I was experiencing in my soul. My conscience was terrified. My spirit despaired. I was unable to satisfy God at any point. What could I do? I hunger to find assurance of my salvation. However, the rigors of the monastic life could not calm my clamoring conscience. He has his conscience telling him he's wrong with God. But he doesn't know how to put it right. He tries a monastic life. He tries lots of good deeds. He tries pilgrimages. He tries Hail Marys. He, he tries all sorts of prayers and, and, and self-flagellations. And still there's this thunderstorm within. Things are not right. One point he, he went to Rome and... Um, He was told, I could touch a piece of the very cross on which Christ died and shorten my time of punishment by 17,000 years. Each Hail Mary, I said, before the statue of the Blessed Virgin would earn me 10 years worth of good works. I felt truly blessed to be able to climb on hands and knees the very stairs Christ climbed in Pilate's temple. Each, our father said, on each step was worth nine years' forgiveness. And our father said on the step with the silver cross was worth double merit. I even kissed each step for good measure. However, rising at the top stair, I raised myself to full height and exclaimed, Who knows whether it is enough? I'd gone to Rome with the onions of my good works and returned home only with the garlic of the merits of the saints. I had recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. See, you see what's happening here in Luther's life? This this conscience is utterly condemning him, but nothing he could find in the religion of the day could satisfy him. And it was only when he began to peruse and study the epistle of Paul to the Romans that that conscience began to be educated, directed to the one source of forgiveness and pacifying. That was what calmed Luther's thunderstorm within and actually started another thunderstorm without as he began to see the horror of the religious system of the day. And as we'll see, It was a good conscience that enabled him to face it and fight it and defeat it. So we begin with an educated conscience. But secondly, we move on to an exercised conscience. A good conscience is an exercised conscience. Notice Paul says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offence toward God and men. See that word strive? It means to exercise vigorously. It means to 
to be like a gymnast or an athlete. It means to, to be like a drill sergeant on the parade ground. Paul's, Paul's looking at his conscience and he's, he's trying to stir it up into action. To, to awaken it out of its slumber. And to keep it active. To call it into action. And when we look around us, and even when we look at ourselves, don't, don't we often find that our consciences are often sleepy? They're often lazy. Paul says he always strived to keep a conscience void of offense. And the more Paul exercised it, the happier he became. It's like a muscle conscience. You, you don't exercise conscience. You don't challenge it. You don't prod it. You don't educate it. You don't stretch it. It's just going to get fat, and flabby, and lazy, and ineffective. Conscience has to be stirred up, has to be prodded, has to be stimulated, has to be exercised. And Paul's aim here is not just to have an inward debate. It's not just, hmm, I wonder what's right and wrong here. Let's have a think about this in the light of the word of God. And he has this internal debate. Or maybe a debate with a friend. Do you think this is right or wrong? Well, we have a discussion. But it doesn't actually result in any action. That's not the kind of exercising that Paul's talking about here. That's just philosophical or theoretical or, or hypothetical. It's just in the realm of ideas and the abstract. No, he talks here about having a conscience void of offense toward God and men. And he strove for this by implementing the decisions of his conscience wherever he was. And so, for example, here, he is facing all these allegations, all these accusations, and he knows what's right in his own mind. He knows he's being falsely accused on some grounds. He's being rightly accused on other grounds, but he says that accusation is true and I'm not ashamed of it. The way I worship God is the way I should worship God. This good conscience manifests itself in action, in words, in debate with others, in being courageous and in facing down his opponents. That word void of offense actually means clear of obstructions. And what he pictures here is a conscience that is so exercised, it's like a, it's like a fast runner, it's like a great athlete that, that is so clear on its path, there's nothing to obstruct it. He knows where he's going. He knows what he should do. He knows where he's going. And he's just running fast. Heads forward. Blinkers on. He knows what's right and he's going to do it. There's no stumbling block in his way. But think of the opposite. The opposite of that is a, is a path that's got stumbling blocks, stones and boulders in the way. And this is the path of disobedience. 
And when he turns to this way, if he starts running down that, he's going to start injuring himself. He's going to start breaking bones and bruising and bloodying himself. That's what happens, isn't it, when we go against conscience. We're going down a path, it's the wrong path, and it begins to hurt us. Our conscience begins to get wounded. It begins to get sore. And God's aim is to say to us, hey, you're on the wrong path. Feel the pain, turn around, and find the right path. That's conscience being exercised. But what happens if you're going down this path and you hit a stumbling block of disobedience. You feel the pain. You know you're doing wrong. But instead of it turning you back to the right path, you just keep going. Well, the wound on your conscience will heal. But it will be scarred. It will be seared. It will be calloused. It will be harder. That's why it's easier to keep going down that path. Then the next time you hit another stone, and again, if you ignore it, again, you're callousing, you're searing, you're scarring your conscience, and eventually you keep going down that path of disobedience, full of stumbling blocks. Eventually you so sear and scar and callous your conscience that it no longer feels anything. It's dead. No longer speaks. It's a terrible place to be. And what Paul is saying here is, I'm striving never to hit a boulder. I'm striving to keep a conscience void of offense, having no stumbling block in front of it, every day of my life. And if I do hit a stumbling block, and I do go in the wrong path, then part of that exercise is to take that wounded, bleeding conscience to the blood of Christ. For cleansing and pacifying and healing in a tenderizing, sensitizing way. This is all involved in what Paul's speaking here of a conscience void of offense. It avoids the stumbling blocks. And when it hits them, it turns it back and it seeks the healing blood of Christ. And this is what Luther did in his own life too, isn't it? As his conscience began to be educated, he began to hear the voice of God clearly. Then he began to have to take actions and decisions that would keep him on a clear path and keep him with a conscience that was clean and and unscarred. And and eventually Luther's conscience was so sensitive that he wouldn't allow one thing to offend it. He would do anything other than offend his conscience. That's what that great statement says. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Somebody once said, conscience is what hurts when everything else feels so good. We know what that's like, don't we? You go into sin and there's a pleasure in it, even for a moment, even maybe for longer than a moment. Everything feels so good, but conscience hurts. Conscience is what hurts when everything else feels so good. Isaac Walton, famous English angler, 
said the person that loses their conscience has nothing worth keeping. In contrast, listen to Mark Twain's words. Good friends, good books, and a sleepy conscience. This is the ideal life. Well, we have two paths to choose there, don't we? With the path of Paul, and the path of Luther, and the path of Isaac Walton, or with the path of Mark Twain, or the path of stumbling and keeping going, stumbling and keeping going, until eventually conscience is completely seared. For us, an exercised conscience is a conscience that is daily examining what's right and wrong. A conscience that reads the newspaper, surfs the net, interacts with people, speaks and listens, always through the filter of God's word. We're always deliberately asking ourselves, right or wrong, true or false, good or evil. We're going to the word of God to educate conscience, then to exercise it in our daily lives. And as we exercise it in the right way, it will strengthen, it will clarify, it will make the next decision easier. But if we don't exercise it, then we end up down this path which ends with a seared conscience. And and so, you know, when we're in these situations where maybe watching television, we come across a program, a show, the scene or situation, I think, yeah, shouldn't watch this, but hmm, it's only a few seconds, want to watch the rest. Or we're surfing a website and we come to a page or two or a site, we feel, oh, well, I shouldn't be here, shouldn't be watching that video, but oh, well, nothing wrong with it really, is there? I mean, just watch it to the end, you know, tomorrow's another day. Or you're with your boyfriend or girlfriend and getting physical and go a bit too far and think, well, you know, these things happen, you know, won't do it again. Or you're at your employer's and, you know, there's a few bits and pieces of office stationery around and think, well, that's a huge company. They're not going to miss a few dollars worth of paper and staples and things like that, are they? Or it's the IRS and tax return and they're hardly going to miss a couple of hundred dollars from me, are they? Anyone else tells me this is the way to do it. And so you see, in so many areas of daily life, our conscience is being challenged. We're, we're being faced with two paths. Just as Paul was here. Just as Luther was. Good conscience or a seared conscience. Remember, every time you go against conscience, it's not only not right, it's not safe. And it makes the next sin easier to commit until it's frightfully easy to do anything. 
And another thing we can get into is thinking, well, you know, I, I, I keep a good conscience in 90% of my life. Uh, you know, there's this 10% over here, there's this relationship, this thing, this place, this person, whatever. And, you know, it's not great, it, you know, the best if it didn't have it. But 90% versus 10, you know, it's a fairly good balance. But if you are injuring your conscience in one area of life, you're not exercising it in the right way. You actually can't compartmentalize it. If you, if you injure one muscle in your body, you, you can't think, well, you know, the rest of the body will be fine. No, the one muscle, as you realize, or, you know, you strain a muscle, you soon realize how often you use that muscle, don't you? You strain a muscle in your leg and you realize, boy, I can hardly do anything, or in your back or whatever. And it's the same with conscience. We cannot choose to injure it in one area without harming the rest. That's why Paul says here, I myself always strive, always, in all things, in all places, in all situations, in all circumstances. And so must we. Luther was often tempted to compromise. You know, he said, well, you know, we'll give you 90%. But, you know, let us keep this. And Luther said, no. It's 100%. It's all or it's nothing. He exercised his conscience. The third thing about a good conscience is it's an encouraging conscience. And I really mean that word in its true sense. It gives courage. It it puts courage in us. It encourages us. Notice here, Paul says that he strived to strove to have a conscience without offence toward God and men. Toward God and men. So Here's someone, and he's got a right sense of priority. If he can have a good conscience before God, keep his conscience clean, then there'll be a consequence of also having a good conscience before men. He'll be strong and he'll be brave before men because he has a boldness before God. Paul, Luther, majority opinion, tradition, Consequences, they didn't terrify and they didn't move him. They knew guilty consciences make people cowards. Good consciences make people bold and courageous. Martin Luther King, slightly different character, slightly different name, But said this, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position 
that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But one must take it because one's conscience tells one that it is right. A good conscience is a brave conscience. We know this, don't we? We've met people, haven't we, that kind of seem shifty, seem a bit suspicious, don't seem comfortable with us. And then maybe you realize that a few weeks or months later, there's some terrible sin going on in their life. That happens in churches, doesn't it? Somebody used to be really strong and upfront and leading, and then they kind of you know, start fading away, and they don't, don't seem to have the same boldness and courage anymore, and seem, you know, going on to the sidelines of things. And then comes the bad news. You realize there's been something going on in their life. It's just sapped them of moral courage. On the other hand, a good conscience, to know that you're right with God and to know that you're doing what God says is right and saying what God says is right, what boldness and courage. Here's Paul. He's in front of a man who has the power of life and death over him. He's being accused by probably the most skillful attorney in the world. The stakes are all against him. He's really just virtually got no chance at all here. And... And yet, he's completely unapologetic. There's no qualms. He's, he's not just here trying to clear himself. But he's actually having kept a clear conscience before God and before men. It says that when he's established a bridgehead from which he launches an all-out assault on the soul of Felix. He's going after Felix's soul. He's trying to win Felix for Christ. It's incredible. But it's all done on the foundation of a good conscience. He's not afraid of God. He's not afraid of men. And so he goes after the most powerful of men in the world. To seek his soul for Christ. We look back maybe on our lives and we can remember times when we were more bold. And it was usually when our spiritual lives were in better shape. When our consciences were right with God. And maybe we look at ourselves today and we, we think, well, you know, things aren't really good in my spiritual life. When was the last time you witnessed? It's linked. There's a story here. A man once preached, his name was F.E. Marsh, on the subject of conscience. And afterwards, a young man came up to him and said, Pastor, you've put me in a bad fix. I've stolen from my employer, and I'm ashamed to tell him about it. You see, I'm a boat builder, and the man I work for is an unbeliever. I've often talked to him about Christ, but he only laughs at me. In my work, expensive copper nails are used because they won't rust in water. I've been taking some of them home for a boat I'm building in my backyard. I'm afraid if I tell my boss what I've done and offer to pay for them, he'll think I'm a hypocrite. And I'll never be able to reach him for Christ. Yet, my conscience is bothered. 
Later, when the man saw the preacher again, he exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled the matter, and I'm so relieved. What happened when you told your boss? asked the minister. Oh, he looked at me intently and said, George, I've always thought you were a hypocrite. But now I'm not so sure. Maybe there is something to your Christianity after all. Any religion that makes a man admit he's been stealing a few copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. You see the power of a good conscience? The impact it has? Um, Luther talks about this in his own battle with the Roman authorities. Um, they said to him, your most serious offense is not that you protest against the teaching of the church. Many have done that before you. It is rather the conceit which you manifest when you set up your conscience against the whole church. That is your real sin. For the church is God's representative on earth. To oppose the church is to oppose God and to think oneself above even God himself and his representative. Well, this was a huge burden to Luther. At times it came close to crushing him and and making him cave in. How can I, my little conscience, be right? And the whole world be wrong. He relates again and again how he was about to agree to a compromise and submit to the authority of the church over his conscience. But God's wonderful leading and inner guidance alone raised him up again and gave him courage and strength to stand with God, relying solely upon the testimony of his own conscience, though the whole church stood against him. A good conscience is an encouraging conscience. As one of the Puritans said, Give ten thoughts to the question, what will God think of it? Before one thought to the question, what will men think of it? In Scotland, I I remember being involved in quite a significant controversy with, with um, a few other Christians against a, quite a powerful institution. And um, this, this one very close friend of mine, who's just incredibly brave, incredibly strong, much more than me. I, I used to admire him greatly. And um, then there was a later stage. Another issue arose and he was there, but he didn't seem to take much of a part. And then at another occasion, he just wasn't there. And it was a big puzzle to me until eventually I found out that there was backsliding in his life. And it just turned him from a, someone as bold as a lion to, to like a somebody trying to, like a little insect trying to scramble under a boulder. 
That's what a bad conscience can do to us. It enfeebles us. It weakens us. It turns us into cowards. But a good conscience encourages us. Lastly, a good conscience is enjoyable. It's an educated conscience. It's an exercised conscience. It's an encouraging conscience. And it's an enjoyable conscience. When you, when you look at Paul here in this passage, it's, it, you almost get the feeling he's enjoying the confrontation. But there's just a thrill in it. There's, a, there's an excitement in it. Um, and it's interesting, again, if you, if you look at the context, um, immediately before it, verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. So you see the context? He's, he's conscious. Of death. Death is possible here. And if not here, then it's going to eventually happen. And whatever happens, we're all going to end up being resurrected and facing judgment, both just and unjust. And it's in the light of this, in the light of death, resurrection, and judgment, that he says, I strive always to keep a good conscience before God and men. In other words, this good conscience enabled him to actually look forward to these great events, which in normal circumstances would be terrifying. But Paul could look forward to death, to resurrection, to judgment with joy, because he was so confident that his life and his testimony was in accordance with God's will. And so here he is, he's in, he's in the most difficult, painful, terrifying of circumstances, and yet he can think of the ultimate realities with peace and contentment. A good conscience helps us in prosperity and in adversity, in life and in death. As somebody said, there's no pillow so soft as a good conscience. As another person said, a good conscience sleeps in thunder. It's a story told about Abraham Lincoln. He was obviously under a lot of pressure, a lot of criticism during the years of the Civil War. And um, he knew he made mistakes. But he resolved never to compromise his integrity. So strong was this resolve that he once said, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left. And that friend shall be down inside of me. He could, in his own mind, face death with a confidence, even a joy, because he had a friend with him. And of course, the opposite is also the case, isn't it? Pastors have seen this, I'm sure maybe others of you have seen it on deathbeds where 
conscience that may have been sleeping for many years, may have been seared, it suddenly comes awake and begins to shout and terrify and bring back to memory all the times conscience was wounded and offended and hurt. And there's no relief. And it's too late. God's court ahead, as it were, begins its sitting within as the end nears. Conscience is like a pre-trial hearing. Conscience is a witness, a jury, a judge, and even an executioner. In fact, conscience does not die when we die. In fact, conscience, we're told by Jesus, actually is stirred up and enlivened by death. It's what Jesus describes so horrifically as the worm that never dies. That's what lies ahead of a bad conscience. But what a contrast to have a good conscience. How will your conscience be as you come to the end? Will it be a friend? Your greatest friend? Or your enemy? Your greatest enemy? Will it be comforting you as you breathe your last? It's a conscience void of offense before God and men. A conscience that's been washed in the blood of Christ. A conscience that has been made white as snow. Or will it be a monster rearing its ugly, hideous head to begin our judgment here below? George Crabbe said this, In a poem, O conscience, conscience, man's most faithful friend, him canst thou comfort, ease, relieve, defend. But if he will thy friendly cheeks forego, thou art, O woe for me, his deadliest foe. What happened in the life of Paul? God did a work on his conscience within that resulted in a transforming work without that turned the world upside down. We see in Paul's life the world-transforming power of a good conscience. And that's what happened at the Reformation as well. Luther and other men like him, their consciences became captive to the Word of God. They, They were educated. They were exercised. They were encouraged. And they enjoyed this. And it gave them great strength. This this inner change powered outward change. That in turn empowered world change. And these patterns are laid down for us in the Bible and in Luther's and many other people's lives. For us to learn from. And to pray for. That we too would have the world transforming power of a good conscience that it would transform our world and through that transform the outer world as well Paul gives us the key to this to strive always 
to have a conscience void of offence before God and before men. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for conscience. Educate it, we pray, that we may have a right conscience, a conscience that is guided by truth. Help us to exercise conscience and to follow it, even in the small things, that we may train it and strengthen it, So that when we face the big things, we will have the ability to do what's right. And renew our boldness by giving us a clear conscience that does not accuse us. And give us, as we face the future, That great joy, that great assurance of having a conscience that is clean and clear. We thank you for your work in Paul. We thank you for your work in Luther. We pray for your work in our own lives and in the lives of all who we love. And if, O Lord, there are those here this evening whose consciences are loud and deafening. Help them to know that they must follow what is right. And if they are being accused, help them to bring it to the cross of Christ. And we would especially pray for any with seared consciences. That you would re-tenderize and re-sensitize again through the blood of Jesus Christ. And put them on the right path again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan. Where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.